Our sponsor for this episode is Panacea Financial, a nationwide digital bank built for doctors by doctors. Panacea offers loans just for physicians and medical students with low rates, free checking with no ATM fees nationwide, and 24-7 live customer service. Visit panaceafinancial.com today to open your account and join a bank built with you in mind. Panacea Financial is a division of Primus, member FDIC. Are we doing intro up top or are we going to do it at the end? Yeah, yep, yep. We can do it now that we have strange energy going into it. Let's do it. (laughs) This time I won't yell Paul's name. Okay. (laughs) Paul! Paul! (laughs) All right, we're keeping all this in. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Hey! Pause for interruption. Oh, that was. <laughs> was that close to? Was that, that Stuart? Just grimly depressing is what that was. <laughs> that sounded like a cartoon character. <laughs> hey! <laughs> the listener at home will notice there there is no Watto, there is no Stuart, and so my five year plan of eventually shedding all the original hosts, the Curbsiders, is about to <laughs> come to fruition. Instead, I have the great Chris Chu as well as two super secret, super special correspondents who are going to talk us through this our second episode recapping. The American College of Physicians ACP Conference 2021. Chris, how are you? Oh, I'm doing fantastic, Paul. Did you have a good conference? It was it was it was great. It's I forget how nice it is to actually sort of sit and learn from others passively. Which that that sounds kind of like a backhanded compliment, but that's not what I mean. But like I, I feel like there's just so much great clinical content mm-hmm. um, that I didn't have to write. <laughs> so so I was always always really uh, appreciative and grateful about that. What about you? Well, at least being able to hang out with everyone, doing these recaps, at least made things feel more normal, like how we used to do it for the last couple of years. Yeah, it's, I, we talked a little bit off air um, about how much I actually miss eating good food in strange cities with people that I like. And I, I'm still looking forward to doing that again. But I think the conferences do offer a way that this format does at least let you, I don't know, walk your dogs or do whatever it is that people do when they're not um, staring at Zoom calls. Um, before I, I move on, I should say what we do. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. Ordinarily, we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. I already explained what we're doing today, which is just recapping experts who talked at us. So a little bit different, but still, we're going to bring you our favorite pearls from the ACP conference. And I think to start, we'll start with um, our first super special secret guest, which is someone whom you know and love. It is our correspondent and producer extraordinaire, Sarah Roberts. Sarah, hi. Nice to see you. Hello. Tell us what you learned. So uh, I attended the presentation Management of Depression and Anxiety for the Internist by Dr. Heidi Combs. Uh, And Dr. Combs is an associate professor of psychiatry at University of Washington. Um, So some of this may be very kind of basic fundamental stuff that folks already know. Um, But as Paul said off air, you know, the fundamentals are always good. So she she started off by noting that there is about a 13 percent prevalence of anxiety disorders um, among folks in the U.S., And about 20% of primary care patients have at least one anxiety diagnosis. The chief complaint may not actually be anxiety or depression for folks who are coming in presenting with a psychiatric disorder. Um, And I thought this was an important point to emphasize uh, that indeed in most cases, it sounds like patients are actually going to be presenting with other symptoms. Um, So that may be somatic concerns, uh, it could be pain, it could be trouble sleeping, 
But those are symptoms to keep an eye out for that might not scream depression anxiety right away, but in fact are, are often very highly correlated. In terms of screening patients for anxiety, uh, she recommended a number of different screening tools that have a very high sensitivity and specificity. So these are things like the GAD-7, which is for generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, and PTSD, the GAD-2, and the panic module of the PHQ for GAD and panic disorder. This is the fact that blew my mind. And when I said this before, you guys were like, yeah, obviously. But for me, this was very revelatory that uh, the majority of patients, and that's about 80 to 90 percent of patients with anxiety and depression are treated by primary care physicians, not psychiatrists. And I was just like, um, and this is I think this is amazing. I think this is really fantastic because it can be very difficult for patients to access psychiatric care. Um, or care from a psychiatrist specifically. So I thought that was really interesting and, again, made the presentation even more uh, important and relevant. So to that end, the first-line treatment for anxiety disorders are SSRIs, SNRIs, and CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. The goal is, of course, to increase serotonin. And she uh, emphasized that when you're starting a patient on an antidepressant, specifically for anxiety uh, you want to try to rate up pretty carefully, and she starts patients on about half the usual dose. And the rationale is because these medications can actually cause a spike in anxiety among patients before it starts helping. So patients should be made aware of this so that they're not surprised if their symptoms get worse. Um, but just something to, again, be mindful of as you kind of get the patient up to a therapeutic dose. Benzodiazepine pearls. And uh, Dr. Combs mentioned this in the context of if you have a situation where it is appropriate, you know, benzos are not a first-line treatment for generalized anxiety disorder, for example, but um, they may be appropriate in some cases, for example, to reduce acute anxiety symptoms while a patient is adjusting to an antidepressant that will have more longer-term effects. If you are prescribing a benzodiazepine, she recommends do not use alprazolam because it can cause some rebound anxiety when it wears off. Uh, she said that clonazepam and lorazepam are better options. And also just as a kind of a counseling strategy to make sure the patient is aware that the benzodiazepine um, prescription is for short-term use uh, and that, you know, scheduled or PRN is okay, but it's it's going to be tapered off eventually. Um, right. And I think we, we talked a little bit about off here about mm -hmm. this. I think it's one of the concerns and why they're not sort of first line for a lot of internists, at least, is that it's just kind of hard to, to close that door once you've opened it. Mm -hmm. So once you initiate someone on benzodiazepines, it's just, it's really tricky to sort of stop them because oftentimes they, especially alprazolam, it's funny that you mentioned that one can actually have a euphoric effect too. Oh, which interesting. Is why it's, um, yeah. It's, so that's an even, especially tricky one to sort of discontinue once it's sort of given with any kind of regularity. So it's, hmm. um, I, I tend to use this with caution. I don't know, Chris, what's your practice pattern with in terms of sort of initial benzos before transitioning to SSRI? Yeah. I mean, I, I pretty much do, do the same. I don't have anything else specific, but as we sort of discussed and when we say offline, it means that we actually discussed this before and I didn't hit the record button. Um, <laughs> There's um, an hour um, of amazing content you all missed out on. <laughs> it was a dry run. Um, but really, it, it's really important when you're when we're, we're talking about medications like benzodiazepines that really just that is really important for that counseling and letting them know being what, what to expect with their care and what to expect with with the script, because you need to let them know that this is only meant to be short-term mm -hmm. to help them with their symptoms. But in the long term, the SSRI or SNRI or cognitive behavioral therapy, whatever you're doing, is the better long-term right. and safer uh, treatment option for them. So right. that's the only thing I have to add. And in terms of actually helping the patient um, taper off 
the benzodiazepines, she recommended a taper of 25% per week. Um, something that I actually asked in the question section that she addressed is you need to talk to patients um, if they're taking benzodiazepines. You need to talk to them about alcohol use because that can be really dangerous um, in terms of being a central nervous system depressant and having that additive effect. So I don't think I mentioned this in the first time through on the dry run, but that was something that I, I wanted to bring up. Uh, let's see. Love a good harm reduction tip. Yes. Love those. Yeah, I think no, we, we don't always use benzos for everything, right? Like PTSD is, is something that we may not Thank you. use it for. That was, uh, that was the next point that you helped me make. Thank you. Yes, they're contraindicated for PTSD, which I was not aware of. thought that was really interesting. And like without going on too much of a tangent, when I, when I tried to, to look this up, it sounds like it's partly because of the effect that it may have on memory and cognition and that that might interfere with a patient with PTSD with their ability to kind of, I guess, process the trauma or kind of um, yeah, to deal to deal with those particular um, feelings and, and anxieties. So not sure if that's also your understanding. Um, what is effective or may be effective for patients with PTSD is prazosin at night, um, specifically if they have night terrors or hypervigilance and a daytime dose may be appropriate if they also have daytime vigilance. Quick question. Did she suggest SNRIs for P yes. PTSD or mention them? Oh, okay. for PTSD? I don't think she specified for PTSD. Interesting. It sounds like SNRIs, she said, overall is a first-line treatment for anxiety disorders, which would include PTSD, but I, I'm not sure exactly if that's like unique to that particular condition. PTSD is a very complex diagnosis and can include things, well, it can include literally complex PTSD. And unlike something like a phobia, my own experiences with this is that, you know, with something like a phobia, the, the conditioning response and kind of uh, desensitizing someone to it is a little bit different than something with like a traumatic event. But anyway, to your point, Chris, the, that psychotherapy is a first-line treatment for all the anxiety disorders uh, and for depression. And it has, one of the nice things about it is that it has long-term effects um, so it is something that will have a long lasting benefit for the patient. And that includes CBT, problem solving therapy, motivational interviewing, solution focused brief therapy. And I believe on our dry run, uh, I think either Paul or Chris mentioned that certain, certain sessions can actually take place within the primary care office, right? Depending on your resources. Yeah. yeah. Like some primary care clinics, like, like mine, my social workers are, are trained to do, um, brief behavioral therapy. Okay. So. And there's a variety of apps folks can use now, which mm -hmm. we can, you know, maybe link to a couple in the show notes. And um, we also were talking about workbooks, some workbooks that people can use, although always better to use under the guidance of a therapist um, mm -hmm. or a counselor. But, you know, if you live somewhere where you can't get an appointment, it's better than not having access to any type of resource. Absolutely. And moving on to the second half of her presentation, which was about depression. Um, lifetime prevalence is about 16%, and I am sure that that has increased over the time of COVID. Um, I was going to say, that feels low. It feels low. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that depressing? Well, oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Which, uh, you know, and again, like putting my, my kind of psych nerd hat on, is I imagine that that has to do with how we define it. One point that she made that I know on the dry run you guys thought was a really good point was that asking the patient what they have been treated with before uh, is, a, is a really good first step to determining which medication to prescribe. So it's very possible the patient has been on a medication for a psychiatric disorder, asking them what worked and what didn't, and asking any family history and if one of their family members perhaps tried a drug and how they responded to it, um, because that can inform your prescribing. Yeah, and I think one of the things that we talked about is that depression is, is often chronic and relapsing mm -hmm. um, condition. And so you, you may you may have not known someone when they actually had the diagnosis or being actively treated for it before. Mm -hmm. So you're just kind of it's easy to remain on autopilot 
So I think going back and asking those things, I, I'm often often surprised by how often someone is, is knows what they've been on, what has been effective for them. And it's just not actually come up in past conversations. Mm-hmm. So just initiating that conversation in an open, non-judgmental way yeah. gives you really valuable information. So I, I thought that was a really terrific pearl. And it can open up if they had like, you know, had a trial of an SSRI in the past and, mm-hmm. you know, then had sort of something that might be hypomania. It can kind of open up a different diagnosis path, right. which is useful yep. to know about. And people don't always identify hypomania the same way they might identify an acute manic episode. So it's can right. offer some useful clinical info, too. And I should say, we, we've we not identified you yet, Beth Garbs-Garbatelli. Oh, yeah. I'm just um, this, like, random person <laughs> piping in. <laughs> no, I'm glad that you are. But I, I realized the way I set things up was probably, uh, I, I might categorize as aggressively stupid. So I should probably just say that Beth Garbatelli is here, and we're glad that she is. So she'll be talking about her own pearls. But you'll, you've already heard her dulcet tones way in a few times. You should probably know who she is. Um, so thank you, Beth. That's a great point. Um, and Paul, can you remind us what the uh, resource is for prescribing the one that has all of the beautiful tables and charts? It is my favorite thing in the entire world. It's the the Mayo Clinic um, Depression Decision Support Tool, I think, or something along those lines. If you just type some combination of those things into Google, it will spit it back out at you. And basically, it's this tool that goes through all your second generation antidepressants, your SSRIs, SNRIs, and even TCAs, mm-hmm. and will go through the potential adverse effects and how often they occur, the benefits of those. So for instance, if someone is concerned about decreased libido, then paroxetine right. may not be the choice for them. Or if they're worried about weight gain, then you might favor bupropion, um, and sort of on and on and on. So you can actually sit down with the patient, have them sort of pick off this menu um, with you, the things that appeal to them most and the things that they at least they'd most like to avoid. And you've already then generated patient buy-in right out the gate because they've helped choose their own treatment. So it's it's a great tool, mm-hmm. really super effective. Patients really appreciate it, and it's incredibly easy to use. So we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. Yes, excellent. That's awesome. Uh, and I should also mention, um, just to to sell our own back catalog, is that we have talked about some of these fundamentals with mm-hmm. uh, DJ MMC, Marius Commodore, um, <laughs> years ago for our depression episode, but many of these things still hold true. So if, if you are interested in this stuff, please go back and give that a listen as well. It's a curbsiders classic from the vault. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Love Covers that. On the ones and twos. Throwback. I still share the infographic. I think. Mm, yeah, it's I a think really we, good we one. We did the infographic with the new, with the re-update, right? And I share that with my residents often. Mm. Excellent. Uh, so just wrapping up with the depression recommendations. After you've prescribed your patient treatment, do you want to optimize the dose, uh, monitor for adherence, and track the improvement in symptoms? Usually six weeks should be an adequate benefit trial to see if you're going to get the desired result. Uh, But for some, it can take up to eight to 12 weeks. Um, If the patient is just not getting better on that medication, then you can switch them. Um, About half to 60% of patients will respond to a second drug of the same class. Um, However, if a patient has not responded well to two drugs of the same class, at that point, prescribing a third one from the same class is, is probably a waste of time. You should switch to a different modality. And finally, she said to be very cautious with the second generation antipsychotics. I would say overall, she kind of discouraged them. They have a number of different risk factors and side effects, and it's better to exhaust your other options before going to a second generation um, antipsychotic. Was she concerned about the metabolic side effects? Yeah, she mentioned that for sure and recommended if, you know, if for whatever reason, a second generation antipsychotic is the best option, um, then you need to do a full metabolic panel and just make sure that the patients had blood work done and that sounds like it's not a decision to be made lightly. And probably realistically, most of that stuff's been done in the primary care setting. Right. A lot of it will depend on the comfort of the prescriber, either starting an antipsychotic or doing augmentation therapy, mm-hmm. um, which is some, which is probably sort of more varsity level stuff that is probably a, 
its own episode at some point. Yeah, I do think that is becoming more common. I've definitely seen more patients on like a a, a dual kind of thing where they're on an atypical as well, an atypical antipsychotic and an, and some other antidepressant. Yep. Our sponsor for this episode is Panacea Financial. As a company founded by doctors, they know how frustrating it can be to work with financial companies, which is why they've created a better way. Have you thought about refinancing your student loans? Well, unlike other companies, at Panacea Financial, the rates you get for student loan refinance don't go up because of your credit score, how much debt you have, or your income level. Have you ever received a letter offering you a really low rate to refinance your student loans, only to spend time filling out an application and in the end actually get offered something much higher than advertised? Well, Panacea is different and does not waste your time. They are completely transparent and have their four low fixed rates for student loan refinance right there on their website. With no loan maximums or co-signer requirement, their student loan refinance is based on the respect physicians deserve and not on a credit score or debt level. Join the growing number of physicians nationwide that expected more from their bank and switch to Panacea Financial. You can visit panaceafinancial.com today for a better way to refinance your student loans. Panacea Financial is a division of Primus, member FDIC. Um, and I, the other big talk that you, you went to, or at least the other one you're going to tell us about, Sarah, was uh, the talk on insomnia and how we can identify and manage that. Yes. Uh, I attended the Pearls for the Management of Insomnia, Not to Miss, You Snooze, You Lose. I felt like that was oh, nice. important to read the entire title of the presentation. And this was presented <laughs> by Dr. Christopher Lettieri, uh, who is a professor of medicine at the Uniformed Services, University of the Health Sciences. So, uh, no surprise, insomnia is reported by, it says, 20% of primary care patients. I don't know if that's increased, decreased during COVID, but I imagine it's very common. So, insomnia, for this definition, is difficulty falling asleep, staying asleep, waking up too early, not being able to go back to sleep. Uh, and this is for on most nights for three or more months. Um, and specifically insomnia, if it cannot be better explained by a different medical or psychiatric condition. It was more common in women, which I did not realize. And in the uh, likelihood of insomnia increases with age. So what Dr. Lottieri pointed out, um, and which I imagine most of us at some point can, can relate to, is the patients often end up in this vicious cycle of having inadequate sleep and then kind of employing these ultimately maladaptive coping strategies to try and alleviate the fatigue, right? So you can't sleep, you get three hours of sleep, you're exhausted, you drink more coffee, um, you take a nap, uh, you get start getting anxious about not sleeping, and all of those further impair um, the sleep cycle and can lead to more and more insomnia. So it just becomes this like terrible cycle. The first line treatment from, from what Dr. Lettieri said is, is going to be uh, behavioral change and reinforcement, reinforcing um, healthy sleep behaviors. So you're trying to recondition your brain, basically, or your circadian rhythm. And that starts with encouraging patients to uh, maintain a regimented sleep cycle. So going to bed and waking up at the same time every day. The ideal is for bedtime to be, you know, about eight hours before you need to be up. And you should, again, ideally be falling asleep within 15 to 20 minutes of going to bed. Um, and he stressed that this can be done incrementally. And in fact, having the patient change a bunch of like lifestyle or sleep factors if it happens all that once, it's just going to, um, it might be overwhelming or it might not uh, stick, so to speak. So you can incrementally kind of move or advance the bedtime. So for example, if the patient usually goes to bed at 12 a.m. and then falls asleep at 2 a.m., then you can kind of have them move that bedtime back 15 minutes at a time every week until they're getting closer and closer to having that full stretch of, of seven or eight hours. And the good sleep hygiene thing was a huge, uh, huge factor that he emphasized. So, oh, actually, I should mention um, 
the patient might have a short-term sleep deficit while they're adjusting to this. So, you know, he really stressed that these changes, it takes a while for them to work. They might not work immediately, but they will have long-term benefit. And so maintaining that routine, even if at first it's difficult, should be worthwhile ultimately. Um, And that it's going to be normal for the patient to maybe, you know, because if they're changing their whole sleep cycle and bedtime and everything, they may have even less sleep for a few days. Um, And that's normal and that's okay. And you should still keep proceeding with the behavioral change and reinforcement. That's a great point because it's like everything else in medicine. It's going to get worse before it gets better. (laughs) Just doing something that's for guidance is is important. Yeah. That's great. Right. Also, it's something we, I, I, when I was listening to this, I was like, wow, I'm really doing everything wrong for my own sleep. I'm like, oh "Oh my gosh. Tell us about the sleep hygiene stuff because I guarantee you I violated all of it. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so, uh, this, the sleep hygiene, you know, that includes things like only using the bed for sleeping and sex. Um, you want to minimize noise and light, avoid napping, practice relaxation, relaxation strategies, which might be meditation, things like that. Limiting screen time, which I think is one that we're all universally pretty bad at. So like writing notes from bed, like <laughs> presentations and like doing flashcards. Going down the Wikipedia helping. rabbit hole of like every major environmental disaster. Yeah, no, those things don't typically assist with um, huh, healthy sleep. That's... I know. <laughs> um, so limiting screen time, um, no alcohol or nicotine within four hours of bedtime, no caffeine after 2 p.m. Exercise is great, but not within three hours of sleeping. And, uh, you know, kind as of Paul has some caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just as I have a sip of coffee. Right, it's right. It's all fine. Um, and he also uh, emphasized the importance of, of basically exposing yourself to daylight. <laughs> just as somebody who's been studying for a standardized test for a while, I'm just kind of like, what? <laughs> why would I do that? <laughs> um, why would I exit the house in the daytime? So I did actually end up, he did not recommend this, but I'm using it anyway, is um, it's called D-Minder. And it's uh, an app that tells you how much vitamin D you should be getting from the sun and like exactly how long you should stay outside at what time for to get at it anyway. Whoa. Just just a thing. So that, what I'm saying is that there are resources to kind of figure out um, <laughs> to figure out uh, when and how you might get the most benefit in terms of circadian rhythm um, from daylight exposure. Um, but yes, yeah, so. Daylight and then switching to a darker environment is very important for for getting that um, sleep phase correct. I don't know if that's the right terminology. So much like depression and anxiety, CBT is a first-line treatment. Um, Specifically, it's called CBTI, so CBT for insomnia. Uh, It's resource-intensive, though, and there are limited providers. There are not a lot of sleep behavior specialists, apparently. But however, there are some online and web-based programs that may be helpful for patients who can't access in-person behavioral programs. Any any commentary so far? Well, yeah, so I, oh, go ahead, Chris. The, the apps that I have used specifically, so there's, it's called, it's actually, I think it's called CBTI. Hmm. If you if you search for it in most of the app stores, it was um, first developed by the VA, I think. So um, that's it's a very good app. Um, the other one that they they brought up, which I have used also, but I think costs money, is Sleepyio. Oh yeah, um, or Sleepyio. Yeah. Hmm. That's so, so cute. Those those are sort of two two ones that they brought up during mm-hmm. during the session, or I think it was during this session. Yes. Um. So I think if if, those, if apps are what you're looking for, at least those are places to start. Yes. And I, I guess along those lines, in terms of of management, um, it, was there any talk about progressive muscle relaxation or mindfulness meditation specifically, or the evidence behind those? Because actually, I, I do a fair amount of recommendations for those because I feel like those apps are, are findable as well. Is there actually evidence behind that or am I just making stuff? Oh, up? that's interesting. Um, he mentioned the the points about relaxation and using things like meditation, which I imagine would include the progressive relaxation. But 
I don't know if you got too too much deeper into it. Do you remember, Beth? Right. I don't remember. It seems low harm, at least, which is why I feel right. totally comfortable recommending it. No one's hurting themselves by relaxing their feet first and then their, their head last. So, like, that, that seems relatively <laughs> safe regardless. Right, right. I agree. Yeah. Um, and also, if you if you want to go analog style, uh, he recommends the book Quiet Your Mind and Get to Sleep by Colleen Carney. <clears throat> he said it's good for doctors and patients. And that's available at certain retailers that we don't need to mention. Um, <laughs> they don't need the press. <laughs> Uh, so moving on to um, pharmacological interventions. So for over-the-counter, what people are using the most, he said, is alcohol. Obviously, this is not an ideal treatment for insomnia. Um, it does help people fall asleep faster, and it may cause the perception of better sleep. But ultimately, it's a very bad sleep aid, and it will actually disrupt your sleep. The second half of your sleep is more fragmented, um, and it just kind of messes up the sleep stages, and you're going to ultimately have non-restorative sleep. Uh, so it may, it's one of those things where it may appear to kind of to help guide you into sleep, but it does not actually um, have any long term benefit. Um, he said that, you know, the majority of his patients that he's seeing who are coming in with insomnia as a complaint, they are using OTC sleep aids. So specifically, like antihistamine uh, is like the big one. Most of the OTCs have some variety of antihistamine in them. He said that, you know, these are not ideal. They do not promote normal sleep. They can disrupt sleep architecture. The patient may feel like hungover or fatigued the next day. Um, and also the patient can become tolerant and um, even psychologically dependent on the sleep aids. Um, so this is things like diphenhydramine. Melatonin, however, he said, is pretty low risk and can um, show some potential benefit. Standard dosing ranges quite a bit from 0.3 milligrams to 3 milligrams. and can help, help phase shift the patient with insomnia. He said going above five milligrams might have a sedating effect, and then you have a risk for adverse phase shifting and daytime sleepiness. Uh, so for other prescription drugs, he went over these because these are often like what people think of when they think of insomnia drugs is things like uh, Zolpidem, I think is the generic name, right? Um, so the he said that he stressed that the majority of his patients are successfully managed without habitual use of these types of medications, um, and that he may prescribe them or may be appropriate to prescribe them for a short period of time to jumpstart the behavioral modification. He did note, and I want to stress this, that you need to be really careful when you're prescribing to elderly patients because of the risk of cognitive impairments. There's a longer elimination um, half-life for the drug, uh, and that for, for elderly, elderly patients, um, melatonin and light therapy may be better alternatives. For patients for whom the soporific medications may be more appropriate, um, they include things like GABA agonists, melatonin receptor agonists, Histamine antagonist and orexin antagonist. So basically, he divided them into two categories: drugs that I think is drugs that stop wakefulness uh, or start sleep um, is like the two general categories. And he he noted that they do work, but behavioral change is still required of the patient. So I think that was a big takeaway for me was that even if the patient is an appropriate candidate for these medications, they still need to implement all those other behavioral and kind of reconditioning. Um, tips that he mentioned. The most commonly prescribed pharmaceuticals are the benzodiazepine receptor agonists. So uh, that's Zaloplon, Zolpidem. The issue with them is, of course, they don't promote normal sleep and they can lead to the fatigue and cognitive impairments. And that's why some have an FDA black box warning, I believe. I'm not sure which ones. I think the drug the, drugs. the drug okay. companies Probably make say. the names harder to say so that we'll all just say the brand names instead. Oh, is that wait, is that true? I don't know. Oh. I, I think that's true. <laughs> I love right. your conspiracy theories, but they're right. great. <laughs> um, so he mentioned some alternatives. Um, overall, though, he said 
the off-label medications. Um, so moving on to other to other medications, off-label use uh, is just there's little to no evidence that they're beneficial and may actually be harmful to insomnia patients. Um, so he's referring to things like antidepressants, antipsychotics, antihypertensives. Um, and then my big takeaway, which I was really surprised by, was do not prescribe trazodone. It does not work in the majority of patients, he said. So that was that was news to me because I know several people who have been prescribed trazodone for insomnia. What's your take on that? You see it all the time because you feel like you're getting away with something, <laughs> like you're prescribing something that doesn't have habit-forming qualities mm-hmm. and doesn't have sort of the, the diphenhydramine sort of um, bad side effects. But yeah, it's, I've never found it terribly affected my own practice. So, but it's people will like it because it feels like it's safer mm-hmm. than other agents. But also, I, I think so. I think some of the studies, you know, or at least in, in practice, a lot of people may use it more if if you're trying to de- uh, treat more depression-related insomnia, then they maybe say that the trazodone is you're treating your insomnia and your mm-hmm. depression. But really, I think they're just getting a lot of the anticholinergic effect from the trazodone to make them. Hmm. So. And then it's you it. have to worry about giving them like prolonged erections and things like that. Oh, too, that's right. So. Well. <laughs> Right. Well, sure. The one side effect everyone knows about, but it's like, I, I think it's the other thing I think is with insomnia, it's so people are so miserable yeah. with it and you want to at least give the illusion that you're doing something. Yeah. And like, I, it's so, it's so unsatisfying to hear, hmm. well, I'll try to go into bed a little bit earlier. Right. Or, Don't scroll through your phone and right. close or, your curtains at night. Yeah. 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 So like, it's, which all those things are things that you have to do, but I, it's hard to make sort of those changes and you feel like you're, you're you want to do something because patients are so miserable. So mm-hmm. I get the urge to kind of just give the illusion of movement, but um, yeah, unfortunately that's one that's not terribly effective. I don't think. Sarah, was there any discussion in terms of before we um, before we transition to one of my favorite topics? <laughs> but in terms of the screening and sort of behavioral things, did um, did the presenter talk about screening for sleep apnea at all as a possible cause of insomnia? I feel like that's a real common yes. one that is sometimes missed. He did mention that. Um, yes, I, I did not mean to skip over that, but he said, you know, the, the first thing when before prescribing insomnia or counseling on insomnia is to make sure it actually is insomnia and not um, the result of of something like sleep apnea, for example. Perfect. Hey audience, as you know, I am a huge fan of geriatrics. In fact, I almost did a fellowship in geriatrics, but it just it just didn't happen for me. But fortunately for me, there exists the Jerry Powell podcast. Jerry Powell is a geriatrics and palliative care podcast for every healthcare professional. That's the place that I like to go when I really want to do some learning about dementia or palliative care, delirium. I want to learn how to get better at having conversations around serious illness. Well, it's hosted by Eric Widera and Alex Smith. They are clinicians and professors of geriatrics and palliative care at UCSF. And on the show, they get together with some of the brightest minds in geriatrics, hospice, and palliative care. They are going to offer you new perspectives and pearls that are going to help you see common frustrations with fresh eyes. Check out their recent episode on dementia where they talked about aducanumab and amyloid PET scans. It's fantastic. I learned so much from that. They also had a great discussion with Dr. BJ Miller talking about living with death in a recent article that he wrote for the New York Times. So what are you waiting for, audience? Listen and subscribe to Jerry Powell in your favorite podcast listening app. Just search for Jerry Powell. That's G-E-R-I-P-A-L, all one word. And visit their website, jerrypal.org, for episode transcriptions and links to the resources they discuss on the show. That's G-E-R-I-P-A-L dot O-R-G. This feels like a great point to transition to my favorite topic that I don't know anything about. (laughs) 
Was there, say, as as I master transitions and hopefully to become as good a steward one day, any mention of marijuana for insomnia or cannabinoid pro- products or medical cannabis? And um, mm-hmm. did perhaps another one of our correspondents attend a lecture that may <laughs> actually speak to that? Well, I did attend a lecture <laughs> on cannabinoids. And of course, I feel like that word sounds made up, but it's it's not. It's a real word. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it, and you know, I'm going to keep this pretty brief because I think we've all been talking about um, how we want to do a nice in-depth review of, uh, you know, medical marijuana in all its forms um, and sort of risks, benefits, where where the research stands. So that that will be a real whole episode on itself. But I'd be remiss if we didn't get a chance to talk about a few pearls. And you can feel free to add some as as I go. But I wanted to highlight the um, harm reduction stuff. Um I didn't get into the, the the sleep aspect, but one thing to note is when you're prescribing these, making sure that you, or if you know your patient's using them, uh, making sure you're telling them about the the evidence that we do have, discussing the adverse effects, being aware of drug-drug interactions, especially with the CBD high formulations. Um, and one thing I didn't know about CBD products is that they're actually a potent inhibitor of P450 enzymes, our favorite enzyme in medicine that is always always in the back of our minds. Um, so that, of course, includes it can interact with any you know seizure meds, warfarin, protein-bound medication. So it's a pretty big interaction to be aware of. And also being aware of um, THC's interactions as a CNS depressant. So you know if you are prescribing any CNS depressants for sleep, being aware that THC product could interfere with that. Um, and counseling patients using them to not drive for six hours after inhalation or eight to nine hours after oral ingestion. Um, but yeah, these are just minor pearls from a very pearl-filled lecture from Dr. Bree Johnston. So hopefully we'll have more to come on this topic in the future. Do you guys have it? Did anyone else attend this lecture? Or- yeah, apropos of the sleep, I, she, she mentioned there's moderate evidence for improvements in short-term sleep outcomes. So they like all these medications, it's not really meant to be used long-term, um, or at least it's not been studied in that way. And then she thought about, she mentioned sort of using cannabinoids for symptom clusters. So if someone has, say, sleep or anxiety or pain kind of all grouped together, and a lot of those things tend to ride together, then then um, medical cannabis might be a reasonable choice. And I, I agree. I think this is own episode just because it's it's such a hot topic, and I think so many patients have questions about it. But the way she laid it out initially that I, that I thought was very useful in, in terms of what we know right now, there's substantial evidence that, that these products are helpful for neuropathic pain and for nausea and vomiting. There is moderate evidence for spasticity um, and sleep disorders, and for everything else, there's there's low to minimal evidence. So, things like non neuropathic pain, I think even specifically anxiety, even though it's it's used for that very commonly, it, at least in terms of self medication, the evidence is not super strong for it as of yet. And in part for for a lot of complicated reasons, that doesn't mean it's not effective. It means it's just not, it's been hard to study, and I don't think we just know much about it at this point, as long as it's been around for. Yeah, she raised the point about research for marijuana. You know, how do you conceal an arm of a study of a psychoactive substance, which comes up with a lot of these kind of hot topics in psychiatric medications, like, you know, other types of psychedelics being used. Like, how do you how do you conceal that arm? Like, <laughs> Right. Um, so, yeah, more to come on that. Um, I can dive into some of my other pearls if we want. The floor is yours. Go for it. Okay. Well, mine's a little bit... I think Sarah's did a nice job of sort of segueing all together. There was like mental health focus and sleep and wellness, and mine are a little bit all over the place. I was live tweeting for the Curbsiders account for this, so furiously trying to get through as many um, conference events as possible. Um, 
I'd also be really um, not a pearl, but this the plenary speakers this year I think were fantastic, um, and I hope everyone had a chance to listen to um, Dr. Manning and uh, Dr. Oddish. Um, really beautiful, powerful speeches, and also Dr. Fauci was there. That other guy. Oh yeah, and by the way, BT Dubs, oh, yeah. the, the most famous doctor in the country, also. Hey, I missed that. Right. <laughs> oh, it's man. all still available if you want to check it out, Sarah. BRB. <laughs> um, Honestly, I think there's a, there's a good argument for ACP to make like the plenary sessions, uh, those plenary uh, speakers, like make that public because it shows how amazing ACP is and the speakers that we have. And I think it's good advertising and marketing. ACP, if you, ACP, if you're listening, I, that's my argument. I agree. I agree completely. Um, so my, I think my top favorite uh, event that I attended was on Venus thromboembolism with Dr. Rachel Rosovsky. I might be mispronouncing her name and I apologize. I did re-listen to see if I could catch her saying it. Um, but she did a really great overview of VTE and PE. So she kind of talked about, you know, they're increasing in incidence. I didn't actually realize that. I, I sort of didn't think it through very – I would have assumed if someone had asked me, are they increasing or decreasing, I would have thought they were decreasing. But they're increasing because, you know, obesity is more of an issue. We have an older population of baby boomers that's aging. Also, apparently, gaming is a new risk factor for DVTs, um, given that it's prolonged stasis. Makes sense. And, you know, an another kind of shocking statistic for me that she mentioned was patients still have a pretty high three-month mortality rate after a massive PE. So in 2006, there was a study looking at that, and uh, the three-month mortality rate for a massive PE was 52.4%, which is, I think, pretty high for 2006, and 15% for a non-massive. So she said, you know, you'd think these numbers today after we have all of these Doax and you know new ways of dressing PE um, that it would be lower, but it's not really. Um, they looked at a at data in 2018, um, and the the death the three month mortality is 41.3 percent for a massive PE and 12.3 for a submassive. So there's still a lot of morbidity and mortality from PEs and VTE. Another pearl is you know if you're not commonly prescribing Doax. Make sure you look up the dosing. Uh, it's complicated because they switch um, the amounts of dosing over the time. Some of them have a parental lead-in. And there are studies that show, you know, if you're not at that optimal dose, there's a tenfold increase in VTE uh, reoccurrence. Another quick pearl from her was she doesn't like to use DOACs in G active GI cancer, as in there's cancer in the lumen of the GI tract. Um, there has been some evidence that specifically rivaroxaban and adoxaban had some bleeding risk for folks. The other thing I did want to mention, oh, this is another good one, a hot topic, outpatient management of DVT slash PE. Um, so they did a really interesting study where they had a, um, a really kind of concerted effort to have follow-up and a risk stratification at the initial presentation. And if they do this, um, mortality, bleeding, um, emergency department return were really rare and didn't increase after this protocol. Um, so with having a risk stratification use of a DOAC and a defined follow-up with PCP, there's a, you can actually increase the number of patients we have with PEs or DVTs who can be successfully treated outpatient without having to get admitted with no increase in adverse outcomes. And the end of her talk, she did a wonderful summary of like what we know about um, COVID and risk of um, bleeding. So we know that COVID has 
coagulopathy. Um, there's, you know, a lot of data about that that's out there. And in terms of the incidence of, um, she looked at, there's some studies that looked at the incidence of VTE and bleeding amongst hospitalized patients with COVID. The VTE risk in some of these meta-analyses was 17% for VTE, but the range was quite large, so 0 to 85. So there's a lot of heterogeneity. And there's also a hemorrhage risk. They actually found in a study they did of 400 hospitalized patients that VTE and bleeding events were about identical. 4.8% of patients with COVID had a confirmed VTE, and uh, 7.6% of critically ill COVID patients did, and th those numbers were identical for um, hemorrhage uh, or bleeding events in COVID patients. So D-dimer in these patients is really a marker of both thrombosis and bleeding. They did a nice, she mentioned a nice roundup they had of all, there's a lot of society guidance on everything right now. So uh, they did a roundup of that. Um, and she ended up kind of, you know, really circling back to the fact that we need to have more uh, studies on this to figure out if we actually do need to escalate or have a therapeutic versus a prophylactic dose. One interesting study she did mention was that there was this retrospective where they looked at 2,000, over 2,000 patients who didn't have a VTE during their inpatient stay, who survived until discharge, um, and only three, per, uh, only three or 0.14% experienced a VTE, um, which I thought was interesting. I would have expected it to be higher. Um, right. Yeah. And she did tease, there's the attack um, active 4A and remap cap multi-platform RCT results. Um, Great names. I know, right? Um, so they're uh. in pre-pub right now, um, n and they're not peer-reviewed. So, you know, her her institution is not changing any of their current recommendations, but what those studies have showed is that uh, therapeutic anticoagulation in critically ill patients did not improve the number of organ support-free days um, right. and might be harmful. But in non-critically ill, there is a benefit for therapeutic anticoagulation. So it's just very interesting. Like COVID is such a strange and, you know, I think we're all kind of tired of thinking about COVID, but it continues to be an enigma. Uh, just the fact that there's different levels of illness and the bleeding patterns are pretty different, it seems, between these different tiers, how we're going to figure out you know, what the, uh, we're, we'll probably need to find a marker for who is going to be a, having a hemorrhagic situation versus a clot. So it's, I see Paul shaking it, his it head. It doesn't sound like we have that yet. We well, no, it, it sounds like we don't like it's because it, it's, it's not uncommon, you know, the patients are discharged because they're stabilized and they, you have these sort of outpatient labs that maybe they're checked in pulmonology follow up and they have a D-dimer of a bazillion. You're like, I don't, I don't know. I yeah. don't know what to do with that. And apparently that's also a marker for hemorrhage in addition mm -hmm. to thrombotic events then i then you're even sort of more at a loss so it's just yeah. yeah you're right it's just such a challenging thing and i just we just keep waiting for the data to roll in even though every day the data rolls in it's just a little bit more exhausting so it's it's a, it's a tough thing to trade yeah and you know i mean i'm kind of curious like if this if covid does become sort of like a seasonal flu where we're seeing more outpatient management or like subcritical cases like are we going to be telling folks to hold you know or uh, contraceptive, oral contraceptive pills, or estrogen hmm. therapy, or are we going to be giving people aspirin? Like, I just, I think we need answers to those kind of questions for like outpatient medicine. It will be interesting to see how that shakes out. A hundred percent. Yeah, I, I think that's as unfortunately, I think the paradigm shifting. We're probably not going to get herd immunity as quickly as everyone was sort of hoping so. And like, this is going to be an episodic thing that that flares and and um, abates over time. So yeah, it, it's unfortunately this will be relevant for years. I think so. Yeah. Uh, important. It's. 
any you know whenever someone knows the right answer if they could just tell me that would be that would be super cool <laughs> yeah i i really can't do justice to her, um this talk on VTE, but we'll include a lot of links in the show notes so you can read the studies that she cited and, and, and highlighted. Um, it seemed like a pretty massive session. It was like so, so efficient. And so like, you know, it was a great, a great one. Um, I'm sorry. Can we just pause for a second? Was that a Stuart level pun? Is that what we're doing over here, Chris? <laughs> Wait, <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> I'll explain the joke. Sorry, he I threw try. massive in I there. Try. And I, it just, I yeah, try. It, all right. I could let it go, but I It really, you know, I sneak it in. I could barely catch my breath after that pun. Okay, Sarah. Yes, that's the response. Should I talk about syncope or should I talk about diverticular disease? I mean, I think after talking about PE, syncope just makes logical sense. So it does. It does. Tell me all about it. Sure. Well. To talk about passing out from all this data that's overwhelming us. Um, <laughs> syncope. Uh, oh, I love it. Um, and this is another no. good title. Syncope, Effective, Efficient, e- Economical, and Evidence-Based Evaluation uh, with Daniel, Dr. Daniel D. Dresler. Um, so I actually thought this was a, a really nice overview of a topic that sometimes I find bewildering as a medical student. What else? What do I not find bewildering as a medical student? Let's be real. But um, he did a really nice overview of diagnostic yield, which is the likelihood that a test or procedure is going to provide the information you need to establish a diagnosis. And I thought that was like a really helpful way to frame, you know, a topic that we think a lot about in med ed, which is like, you know, when you're going through the workup and going through the differential are the choices that you're making for labs and tests and procedures, do they make sense? Like, are they helping you get the answer you need? So um, he, you know, for example, talked about how syncopal patients, more than 50% of them are getting neuro testing of some kind. Um, The diagnostic yield from that neuro testing is 1.5%. But if you focused, you know, getting those neuro tests on people who actually had a neurological finding on their physical exam or on his, or some sort of neurological symptom in their history, the yield is 32%. Echoes in syncope. So the yield of an echo in a patient with a normal history physical exam and a normal EKG, emphasis on the normal EKG, yield is 1%. But if it's in a patient with an abnormal EKG, 17% is the diagnostic yield. So it just kind of really highlighted, you know, make these choices about what you're ordering for your patients, not based on the fact that it's something you can order because they've had an episode where they passed out. But, you know, is there a symptom in their story that makes you think of it? Um, and Beth, when they talked about neurologic testing, I, I, I'm not sure how granular they got into it. Was that things like neuroimaging? So things like CT or MRI of the head, or are we talking like carotid ultrasounds? What, what did that look like? Or EEGs? What did that look like? It included um, all of all of those things. Um, it was a pretty broad de- definition of neurotesting, um, which is why it's such a large amount of patients, but still. Um, and he did kind of wade into the waters of the PE syncope, um, which we're not going to get into here. But... Uh, Basically, consider it if you've had a hospitalized patient and there's still no potential other answer, but it really shouldn't factor into the initial workup, it sounds like. Um, He plugged a really great tool, a Canadian syncope risk score, um, and you can use that to identify patients who are at risk for a serious adverse event within 30 days of their um, emergency department disposition. Gotta love the Canadians. Gotta love the Canadians. They have all sorts of scores. They're so polite. Um, and, uh, giving us great tools. Hey, hey. 
Um, and another. <laughs> Apologies to our Canadian. Sorry. <laughs> Wrong island. Um, my last pearl from syncope is uh, tongue biting. If you're because one of the other you know paths you may go down with the syncope a syncope episode is a seizure. Tongue biting. We always associate with seizure, but I didn't know how actually associated it is. The specificity of that finding is ninety six percent positive likelihood um, ratio is eight point six procedure so make sure you ask your patients about that or ask the witness or check their tongue to see if it looks like it's been bitten on the sides so that's sink bay <laughs> all right and i think lastly but not leastly you had some diverticular pearls yes um how could i skip those i mean they're just <laughs> <laughs> just just the enthusiasm in your voice <laughs> infectious much like some diverticulitis. Yeah, it's so common. We see it all the time. Um, he mentioned this at the top of the talk, which um, I actually think I've seen in practice but hadn't thought about too much. There are younger patients presenting with these conditions. So something to keep in mind, I think, when you have a patient coming in with these symptoms and they're in their 40s. It's just, I think, probably our diets and such. Um, but And he did get into that a little bit, the diet aspect. Um, one pearl that we've talked about before, I believe, is that there is, um, you know, selective use of antibiotics in um, acute diverticulitis if the patient does not need to be hospitalized. So just kind of having that antibiotic stewardship hat on. And we'll put a little bit more about the show notes, but we've talked about it before, so I won't harp on that too much. Um, this is a big one. This is huge, guys. Nuts, popcorn, strawberries, blueberries. All popcorn diet. You can eat them all and you will not increase your risk of diverticulitis. You can tell your patients they can eat all the popcorn they want. Um, so this is big. I feel like this this is something that has been like haunting medical counseling for, I don't know, decades. Um, and I think that he mentioned there had been sort of like a soft, like you don't need to counsel people not to not have them, but now they're officially saying, uh, as of the 2021 um, update from AG AGA, they are not associated with an increased risk of diverticulitis. What do you guys think of that? I think it's terrific <laughs> news. Like, yes. Oh, God. Just like Sorry. some horrible drive hour show. <laughs> I just, just died even more inside. I think it's fantastic news. I, you know, it's, I'm not sure... How many patients, Chris, you've had who've been terrified of like eating corn or lima beans or, or, or I think you mentioned actually a family member with strawberries. Like, and it, there's been no evidence for this. We've known there's not evidence for this for, I think, well over a decade now. And yet we still, just because we're scared that maybe we're wrong, um, we've been counseling patients, you know, maybe just avoid those things kind of, sort of, but it turns out that like, that we, I'm, I'm glad we can just um, stick a fork in this and be done with it. And they don't have to restrict those foods in their diets because it is restrictive. It's so many common foods that people really genuinely enjoy. And it's... It goes back to not stigmatizing patients and not shaming them for things that are, are beyond their control. And this this falls squarely into that category. Absolutely. Completely agree. Completely agree. Um, I also liked that he talked a little bit about the uh, question of aspirin NSAIDs. Um, so the suggestion is now to, you know, you don't have to advise patients to avoid aspirin. But you should advise them to consider avoiding NSAIDs. So like you know, my question is, what does that mean exactly? And he did kind of get into that regular use of NSAIDs is what you want to counsel patients to avoid who have a history of diverticulitis. And that's more than two times a week. So the patient that's like, well, I take I take an NSAID sometimes when I get a headache. That's okay. Person who has OA and they're taking it every day for their aches and pains, 
those are the folks that you would counsel to avoid that in. And in terms of diet lifestyle, he did kind of get into, you know, it's a little bit bunny waters. Like, are you talking about preventing diverticulosis in general, preventing recurrence, preventing first attack of diverticulitis, etc. But one takeaway from that for me was that recent, recent dietary changes are beneficial. So if your patient feels like, well, I already have these you know, what's the point of changing my lifestyle? You can say to your patients now, well, you actually can reduce your risk of having another flare. Um, so those lifestyle modifications include uh, less red meat, increasing fiber, trying to maintain a normal BMI, not smoking and exercising two times or more a week. So doable. The study population from this, I believe, was men, but <laughs> hopefully it would be a generalized. Yeah, finally, <laughs> something for men. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> oh, God. Now, only there's some art about just getting inside the head of a man. That would be really just fantastic. Then my life would be complete. Beautiful. Um, and the last thing is colonoscopy. I actually didn't know this, but folks who have diverticulitis are at an increased risk of colorectal cancer. I guess it makes sense. You know, any type of inflammatory process would possibly predispose you to malignancy, but it's so common that I didn't really put two and two together. Um, and uh, yes, so you want to get a colonoscopy probably six to eight weeks or until complete resolution of symptoms. You can get it sooner if there's some serious alarm features. And you shouldn't be concerned about having complications. I think that he highlighted that just in case folks were sort of worried like, oh, my, pers- my patient was just hospitalized for diverticulitis. Can they get a colonoscopy? Well, according to these recommendations, yes, they're safe within 1.5 to 12 months after an acute episode. So those are my fun pearls. It's interesting. I, I, Cash like Northeast, I feel like actually in a lot of radiology reports, they have mentioned when they see diverticulitis, they actually have made formal recommendations for follow-up colonoscopy to rule out malignancy. Um, which I, So I don't know if the American College of Radiology is sort of ahead of the curve with that or if this is something that's been well-known, but like it's, it's, I, I've not heard the connection made so cleanly before. So that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting too. I mean, I've seen reports that are like, oh, they just have diverticulosis, no need for follow-up. So maybe you've just got some primo radiologists. Well, yes, of course, nothing but the best. (laughs) Pew, pew, pew. All right. Talking about diverticulitis, we're not going to have a bridge. No, I'll give you a I got you. I got you, Chris. Watch this. Are you ready for this? I was going to make a peanut gallery joke. Garbs, it's all you. I think we, no, I can't do it. I was going to say something about digestion, but it's too gross. All right. And that leaves us with Chris, the Chew Man Chew, and the pearls that he learned about. So Chris, finish us off. Tell us about, uh, just give us some some brief hits about things that you learned from the conference that are especially important for us. Give us something else to digest. (laughs) You couldn't help yourself, could you? I couldn't. You had to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I actually went to um, quite a few sessions, but I'll try to make this brief. You know, one of my favorite sessions that I always go to ACP are the multiple small feedings in the mind. And I feel these are like the high hit pearls that sort of like we're really good at, I think. So um, the first one I I went to was just sort of like a rehash of aspirin for priming prevention. And we've talked about this over and over again. We've talked about the ARRIVE, the SPREED, and the ASCEND trials. We know that the increased major bleeding really doesn't help us in terms of all-cause mortality and CV-related mortality. One thing I got out of this discussion, though, was this one trial that looked at stratifying the number needed to treat by CAC score, which I had never seen before. So in this one trial, they showed that high CAC scores over 100, then aspirin therapy actually might 
benefits may outweigh the bleeding risk. So that was one of the pearls I thought was interesting from that. And anyone else ch- check out that session? I did, I missed those, nope. but the small feedings of the mind. Next time I'm at ACP, I'm going to check them all out. Yeah, they're they're pretty much the auto add whenever I'm on them, and and at least in the virtual, they're using them as the interstitials. They're like literally the 15 minute, like in between big sessions. So yeah, I think that's usually when I was getting a snack. So <laughs> yeah, I was busy laminating dough. <laughs> so that was my favorite one single pearl from uh, multiple small feedings of mine. One of the bigger sessions that I went to was the delirium session, which I found really interesting. And they talked about things that I wasn't really sure about, but in discussions with everyone else, it sounds like, you know, someone like uh, Stuart Brigham was really, uh, would really know a lot of things going on here. And so I'm really sad that he's not here to discuss them with me, but um, Dr. Maldonado from Stanford um, had the delirium session. And, um, you know, we talked about why delirium's important. Well, one day of delirium in the ICU really increases the hazard and mortality by like 10%. And that's the other, crazy. I know, right? And the other interesting pearl that he's talked about was that there are different types of phenotypes of delirium. And there's a hyperactive delirium, there's a hypoactive delirium, and then there's a mixed type. And actually, the hypoactive delirium is the most predominant, up to like 60%, and therefore, it's the most missed. Unfortunately, a lot of ways in which we screen for delirium uh, is based on like a direct patient participation. So what they did at Stanford is they developed this S-PTD, the Stanford Proxy Test for Delirium, which they found had over 92% overall di- diagnostic accuracy. And it's actually a nursing-based screening that they culled from uh, all the research looking at how nursing describes delirium. So this increased their accuracy and ability to um, diagnose delirium. So after looking at diagnosing delirium, we, we, he talked about a couple different things in terms of prophylaxis for delirium and then treatment of delirium. And then he broke those down into non-pharmacologic interactions, interventions and pharmacologic. So we all know from non-pharmacologic interventions that you know, you got to do all your like delirium precautions, right? Like take, take away all your lines, take away your Foley's, all these other things as you can. But really from the big takeaway I got from the session was early mobilization is probably the most important. So get them up walking around. That's the best thing to do. In terms of medications, you know, what he was sort of the, the major theme of his talk about delirium was the fact that sleep disruption is probably one of the biggest problems in terms of delirium. And so if you work prophylactically and to keep people's sleep cycles, you're able to hopefully prevent delirium. But then once they are delirious, if you're active in trying to, trying to correct it, that also helps treat delirium. So talk, going back to um, Sarah's discussion about insomnia, he actually says that everyone in their ICU at Stanford goes on three milligrams of melatonin once they hit the ICU. And then if they become delirious, he increases the 10 milligrams. So I thought that was one interesting thing. We can definitely give some of the um, citations to the studies that he has. And actually, he, he is like the first author for most of the studies, so also interesting. And thing to know about melatonin and orexin, which we already talked about during the insomnia part, is that uh, melatonin is like physiologically active for like 12 hours. So he says that around 9 p.m. is when melatonin starts going up, it peaks around 1 a.m., and then disappears by 9 a.m. So um, trying to give melatonin early um, to sort of... Uh, match that physiologic state. But then if you still have troubles with sleeping, then using orexin or using orexin antagonist like suvorexin, which we talked about before, dosing that APM can be used as second or third line to sort of as the opposite of melatonin. The other thing he brought up was the use of alpha-2 agonists. So first he talked about Presidex, which we all know is sort of IV 
and has to be done in the ICU. And the alpha two agonists are interesting because they work on the endogenous sleep pathways and they enhance the deep sleep without affecting REM sleep, like the Z drugs and all those other medicines. Um, so I think that was really interesting when he talked about our prexedester dexmetamidine. <laughs> I think that was the right number of syllables. That felt right. Yeah, it's somewhere around there. In fact, he he abbreviates on every one of his slides and just calls it dex. But I found that really super confusing. confusing. Um, oh my gosh! And you know, he actually cited a bunch of studies that uh, compared that with propofol versus midazolam and showing that it actually worked a lot better for sleep and decreased the need for all those other medicines. Um, one other thing that I thought was interesting was another alpha two agonist that we do know is out there is guanfacine, which, you know, I've used for ADHD and some other places, but as an alpha two agonist, it can be used also in helping with the sleep cycle issue and it's oral and doesn't need ICU monitoring. Um, the big, um, thing about this is that it takes three days to get to steady state. So, so those are some of my quick pearls about delirium. So thinking about using melatonin, trying to work on the sleep. Um, the sleep cycle a little better, consider um, erectin antagonists and maybe an alpha-2 agonist if you're still having problems. So, Chris, did he say anything about, um, and I could be just showing my ignorance about hospital medicine here, but um, in the ICU, I mean, aren't patients sleep, isn't patient sleep also disrupted by having their vitals taken multiple times over the night? Is that a- yeah, I mean, that's in the ICU and, uh, and on the floors. Right. I think that's something that I'm sure, Paul, when you're on service, that's, this is one thing that we've, we've harped on over and over again. Like, you don't have to, you know, wake up patients in the middle of the night to make sure how much they're urinating and dose their, their, their Lasix at nighttime. And, you know, trying to preserve patient's sleep cycle not only improves their care, decreases delirium, but actually gives them a lot more happiness. And, yeah. you know, no one's going to be happy in the hospital, but I think it really improves their satisfaction with their care. They're able to sleep at least a little bit. Right. And fundamentally, how much are the 2 a.m. vital signs or the 4 a.m. lab draw? Like, does it have to be at 4? Are those two hours really that critical? I mean, if there's small changes you can make that are non-disruptive that actually are preventative. Yeah, so that's a great point. So those are those are my, my, my quick hits. Um, and I'm really happy that Beth and Sarah were able to give all their different uh, pearls from their sessions. Paul, did you have any quick hits that you wanted to add um, from the last recap that you were at? Um, not really. I mean, I, I feel like I don't want to gild the lily. You guys, um, I, I went to a bunch of sessions the, the the last day of it, and all of them were hugely practical, but I feel like all of them could be their own episode. So I think I'm, I'm content to leave it here. I will throw it back to you all. Any final thoughts about ACP now that we're done? We're, we're tying a bow and putting a pin into it? Uh, no, I just, I'm always happy when, when they invite us to come to recap these sessions, to be able to bring these pearls to our listeners. Hopefully, uh, our listeners who were not able to go to ACP will be able to enjoy these pearls and our show notes. And those who did were able to enjoy some uh, space repetition with their learning and recall. I have one plug to make, which is short, but I do want to plug the pitch contest that we have going on right now. Um, We've been promoting it on social media, but essentially, we want to hear from you guys with your best episode pitches, and you'll have an opportunity to be on the show if you do it. Um, So you draft up an episode pitch with a guest suggestion, six questions and one learning objective. Send that over to us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. We're going to sift through all of the entries, pick five and have a vote on Twitter um, at some point in the future. I can't promise a date when we would do it, but we'll figure out a time to do a recording with you um, on that topic. 
Um, and the deadline for this contest is May 15th. It had been May 1st, but we extended it to May 15th because our team is pretty busy and had a lot going on. So please consider um, doing a pitch. We would love to hear from you. It doesn't matter what level of training you're at, you know, intern, med students, residents, attendings, people not in academic medicine. Like we would love to hear from everyone. All right. Excellent. And with that, I will say, um, if I can, if you permit me a moment just to be sincere, um, I feel like this past year and change has been largely sort of reactive. You're just kind of responding to things. And I think we're all just kind of holding on. Um, that, that makes it sound maybe a little bit more dramatic than what it actually is. But even so, I think the chance to actually get together and sort of be communal and as much as this is and actually sort of take the time to learn and be thoughtful and work on our own development and be um, and devote a little bit of time to yourself and self-improvement, but also do it with others who are like-minded and feel the same way is just has been really reinvigorating um, and, and great. So I, I'm glad to have had the opportunity to spend time with you all uh, virtually or not. So thank you for that. Um, unless I poison the well and make you think I'm going to be sincere much more than this, we'll, we'll transition to the end. And I will now say, this has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Oh, <laughs> oh, double nice. yum. Stereo. That was upsetting for a couple of reasons. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list while you're there to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to all of us who are producers for this episode, but especially Beth, who's got to go go through uh, and do the show notes for this, as well as our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli, Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganoff on our website, MJ Allen and Jeff Carter are the transcription team, and Chris, the two men too, which is me, on Facebook. <laughs> Until next time, who's this been? Until next time, it is me, Chris, the two men too. Beth Garbs Garbatelli. Uh, hi, I'm Sarah. <laughs> it's been Sarah Roberts. <laughs> yep. Great. Um, yeah, keep nice. all this in, Claire. And we should thank Stuart for composing the theme music. You're doubtless hearing behind our sweet, sweet voices. We should also thank the amazing Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. Good luck with this one, Claire. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.